important to not push beyond what our nervous systems are ready for because they're the strongest part of the human um, biology. And so if we push beyond what we're ready for, that's where we can often find ourselves stuck again. Welcome to the Whiskey and Lemon podcast. I'm your host, Lana Mercedes. And I'm your guest, Sarah Baldwin. Sarah is a somatic experiencing practitioner and an embodied coach. She is also trained in polyvagal interventions and is on the training team at Polyvagal Institute. She specializes in somatic trauma healing, somatic attachment work, nervous system regulation, and somatic parts and inner child work. Welcome to the show, Sarah. I'm so glad to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really uh, exciting to be here and I'm glad we have some time to connect and to connect with those who are listening. Yes. So I really wanted to have you on to talk about attachment theory, but then you also gave me a little bit of information about polyvagal. So I'm really excited to just get into both of those areas. But before we start, if you can tell the audience just a little something about yourself that they wouldn't necessarily notice by looking at your Instagram. Yeah, I mean, maybe a couple of things. I have a, a complex trauma history, so I spent uh, the majority of my life really, really activated and, and shut down, so um, certainly not feeling safe to be seen by anybody in the world, which is really the opposite of what I'm doing now on Instagram, so that would probably <laughs> be something that people wouldn't uh, maybe think. And, um, and, and I'm really, guessing that helps you, right? By doing it on Instagram, it's totally pushing you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Well, you know, the, what we'll talk about in a bit in polyvagal theory is that mm-hmm. it's so important to not push beyond what our nervous systems are ready for because they're the strongest part of the human um, biology. And so if we push beyond what we're ready for, that's where we can often find ourselves stuck again. So for now it's become, and and I can talk about how, how that can become the case for any of us, but become comfortable enough for me because my, uh, system says, Hey, now maybe it is safe to connect and be seen and belong and to know, um, that, that I'm safe to have those things and to do those things. But, um, and it's possible for all of us, whether that doesn't have to be on Instagram, it could be in our romantic partner. We want to step towards our career or whatever it is. Okay. And then you were going to add something else that we wouldn't know about you or that was, Oh, those are kind of the two things. Maybe that, okay. maybe I have, I have a complex trauma history, but that okay. I really spent most of my life very much. So feeling like I didn't belong anywhere because I didn't belong in my own childhood home. So, um, which, you know, on Instagram, we can look at it, maybe having that experience ourselves feeling like, oh, like oh, I don't anywhere. There's something wrong with me. And then we see, people's pages where it seems like, wow, they don't feel that way, or they never felt that mm-hmm. way. And there's just something wrong with me. And so I just want those listening to know that I really deeply know that myself and um, mm-hmm. that it can change for sure. Okay. So your, my next question is for you just, and you can use your personal experience if you're comfortable diving into that or not, but how you got started in your career. Well, uh, so for uh, those of you who don't know me, which is all of you, I'm a somatic <laughs> experiencing practitioner and uh, trauma embodiment coach. So really help people to heal trauma and come back into the full life that they most certainly have the capacity to be living. And like so many of us in our purposes, not all the time, but oftentimes 
It's informed by our experiences in the past. And so what drew me to, to this work was most certainly my personal experience um, of having a complex trauma history. So uh, in, in adverse childhood experiences, so a really unsafe home and a lot of abuse and neglect. And, um, and what that left me with was after I um, left that house and found some safety, mm-hmm. even though I was now safe, my system didn't know I was safe because that's the way trauma works. When it's stuck and stored, even though it's over, our system doesn't know it's over. So then we respond the way we needed to back then, right now. So listeners might be thinking to themselves like, geez, I really wanna be seen. I really wanna receive. I really want, I'm ready to write the book or step towards asking for a raise or have the vulnerable relationship. Like, why can't I do it? What is stopping me? Why am I so stuck? And more often than not, that stuckness is happening because our brilliant self-protective circuit doesn't know that what happened in the past is actually over. So that's where I was. I spent my 20s in that experience where I was just so shut down and so stuck and was dissociated, not really in my body at all, and mm-hmm. depressed and, um, and terrified and just really separating myself from the world. And so I started my own healing journey and, and went to therapy and then um, then realized, oh, this is in my body. So then I started doing um, somatic experiencing he- trauma healing work. And this work really allowed me to come alive again and to want to be on the earth again, um, or maybe even for the first time. And so so my own healing and coming, coming home to myself led me to, to really want to help as many other people as possible to be able to have that same experience. Yeah. Um, so possible for all of us. Yeah. It's so awesome. Would you say, because I like, I'm a huge advocate for therapy, but what do you feel like there was anything specific with therapy that kind of helped you have a little bit of a mind shift? Because I feel like there's some people that can be going for years and really never, you know, benefit from it. And some can benefit from the first session. So first that, and then also maybe for people that are against therapy or think it doesn't work or it couldn't help them specifically. Mm, That's a great question. So there's lots of different types of therapies. Um, The traditional one that most folks are going to think of psychodynamic therapy or talk therapy, Mm -hmm. where we go in and we're talking about what happened. We're talking about what's happening and we're, really trying to gain an understanding and, and reasoning uh, behind all of it, which is can be really helpful. So I'm not at all to, to minimize that at all. That can be incredibly helpful. And what it is also doing, the, the purpose is to create a safe connection. Because for many of us, especially when we experienced trauma, we didn't have a safe, people weren't safe or a secure attachment with our childhood caregivers was inhibited, meaning it wasn't available. Mm-hmm. So if a therapist's job or a, a clinician or mental health provider's job is to be a safe base, maybe for some of us, the first place where we can come to and we can show up being angry at them, we can be frustrated, we can be sad, we can be whatever we are, and they continually hold a safe container for us. That's sure something I didn't receive when I was a kid and probably many listeners experienced that too, where we had to perform or be a certain way or yeah. only say a specific thing. So, 
So the number one thing in looking for someone, uh, a provider, is does my nervous system feel safe with them? They might have, they could have two PhDs, but if I come into their office and I don't feel seen, I don't fully, something about it, I don't know, I don't feel understood, or I just don't feel like I can be, be me here. Well, that's not the right person for your nervous system. So we want to find a safe person because that's one of the biggest indicators of healing for sure. Um, and then the second thing is talk therapy, again, as I mentioned, is really valuable. And when it comes to healing trauma, trauma is not cognitive. Meaning when we experience something that's traumatic for our systems, our prefrontal cortex or our thinking brain cognition doesn't even work. So all that is to say, there's complexities to that, but all that is to say, we can't talk ourselves out of a traumatic experience because it lives in our bodies where cognition, it doesn't compute. Like my arm doesn't understand English or, or mm. Portuguese or any other language. Um, <laughs> but it does understand the somatic language. And we have to start learning how to speak that language for our systems, which helps us regulate our nervous systems and heal trauma too, um, and come into secure attachments and so much more. So there's only a few right now, um, somatic modalities um, that are out there. Mm -hmm. So there's somatic experiencing, that's something that I'm trained in. Um, there's sensory motor therapy, which is another wonderful um, somatic trauma modality and EMDR, which is another really fantastic one. And the Polyvagal Institute teaches clinicians really wonderful interventions on how do we actually regulate our nervous system. When we experience trauma, our nervous system becomes dysregulated. So, um, so, so if folks have been having challenge, like, I, yeah, I can't talk about this anymore. I keep talking about it. I get it. I get it that my partner is safe for me to express my feelings to, but here's the thing. Every time I go to express my feelings to them, I get anxious and then I get shut down and I pick a fight. I don't even know why. And then we're in the same cycling again, mm. or yes, I know there's nothing to be anxious about. I live in Los Angeles. Now I don't live in that house in New Hampshire. I grew up in why then am I terrified of nighttime? I can't stop that experience because mm. it's happening in my body. Yeah. It's not happening up here in my mind. And it's the same reason why people listening who have tried to tell themselves, like, just calm down. There's nothing to be anxious about. Just calm down. And it doesn't work. That's be not because anything's wrong with you. It's because you're speaking a language that your nervous system doesn't understand. And that's the imperative part of healing. We have to do somatic work as uh, along with talk therapy or um, you can just focus on somatic work if that feels like it could be more supportive. Okay. And then you all, you mentioned EMDR. What does that stand for? Uh, well, EMDR, just to the, the, the basic understanding of what EMDR is, it helps people to, um, people don't really need to know the acronym, but the, the, the idea of it is I can go back to an experience, build toleration to go back to it. Let's say I was in a car accident. That's a okay. trauma that occurs. And now my threat detector or my, um, which is called neuroception, but the protective parts of me are saying, uh-oh, car cars are dangerous. Roads are dangerous because they remind me of my past experience where I experienced a trauma. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so anytime I see a car or I go to get in a car or I go to get in a road, uh, my system gets activated and I can't do it. And so 
EMDR is a specific intervention where um, there's multiple things that happen in sessions, but the goal is how do we minimize the charge or that tra trauma response in my body so that I can look at a road and I just feel fine. I used to get so freaked out when I saw a road. Now I don't. I used to get so freaked out when I saw a car. Now I don't. I feel fine. And that's really what somatic experiencing and sensory motor therapy, are, they're all doing the same thing. There's just a little different way of, of doing it. But the, the goal is to minimize and help to discharge completely those traumatic responses to something that was really dangerous. Got it. Okay. Um, so that does make me want to jump into attachment theory. But before we get there, I actually had someone say something a couple of days ago and it it's sticking with me. And they said, um, you know, therapy, they don't know if it's for them or if it would, if it's actually helpful because they don't want to step into therapy where they're just being babied or, you know, they're like, I have things I need to work on. I don't want to see ther therapists just so they can basically tell me everything that's going wrong. Is it my fault? And like coddling me basically. So how would you kind of help someone understand the overall goal of talk therapy, for example? Yeah. Well, again, I'm not a talk therapist, but I have done lots of talk therapy myself. Yeah. But I will say with any practitioner or clinician, um, the role is to really attune with what someone's needing and what their system is asking for. That's, mm. that's really my job. And to know the difference between, um, you know, if someone is at a place where their young parts are really needing a safe, gentle, attuned connection that they never had, that might be what they actually need. But what I'm hearing about this person that you were talking with, they were very clear on what I need is someone to, they didn't say this, these are my words, not theirs, but to attune with me, to validate my experience and to help me learn how to work within toleration of my protective circuit. Because what that person is saying is I'm stuck. I don't know how to get myself unstuck. And I try to take steps forward and then these something happens and then I'm stuck again. And I try to use this word, I'm stuck again. So how do I do that? I like to think my job is to speak the language of those parts keeping us stuck. That's our autonomic nervous system. Uh, that's our neuroceptive response. So how do we balance of not pushing beyond what those parts are ready for? Because if we push beyond, the parts are going to come back even stronger. Instead, we work with in a, in a titrated way in the, what used to be called the window of tolerance, but you can think of like a, the ladder of tolerance in terms mm. of polyvagal theory. So pushing just to the edge where it, it might be hard and scary, but I'm not getting shut down or flooded when I do it, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Also, we don't always know what it is that we need either, right? We might think, oh, well, we don't, I don't need someone doing this. But like you said, it's your inner self or your inner child, where maybe that is what you need. You just think that's not going to help me be productive. That's exactly right. And yeah. you know, none of us can, we are traumatized in relation to, to others, even in a car accident or someone driving the other car, right? So, so more often than not, not all the time, but more often than not, Trauma is experienced in relation to other people, which means healing it happens in relation to other people. Mm. And we have patterns like, for example, for I'll speak for myself and perhaps that person who was you were talking with, I was really neglected as a child. Mm -hmm. So I was like told at five, you have to take care of yourself and figure it out. 
So of course my response when I would get into therapy is or would be first, like, I don't like, I'm supposed to figure it out on my own. I don't need anyone to be gentle with me. In fact, my system would say I, that's overwhelming because I'm not used to people being gentle with me. So even though it's something that is a deep desire and need, it can also feel entirely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's people listening who've had that experience or in a romantic partnership. I just want a partner who's safe and, and shows up and loves me. And then we have that and it's, it's overwhelming. We push it away because we're like, ah, you see me like, stop seeing me. This is (laughs) so uncomfortable right? Right? because our systems don't know it. So that's why it's important to receive help because we have blind spots. We can't see, we just know the pattern. Our systems just know the patterns that they know, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Definitely. Okay. So I want to jump into attachment theory. I'm thinking the best way is maybe just to go one by one. You want to do that. Okay. And then just, you know, how we, or we can actually get into how we develop those afterwards, but we can just have like a brief understanding of each one. Yeah. So the, the, uh, John Bowlby, who, you know, is the, is the attachment person. There's been lots of attachment people since then. Diane Puheller is one of my favorites. Mm. Um, but, but this is how we, the way in which we attach to people can certainly be the way in which we attach to animals or, or other things in our life too. So it can be our romantic partnership, friendships with our animals, how we relate to money, all kinds of things. And the way that we relate, I'm just talk about relationships, the way we relate to people in our current lives is directly related to how we were related to when we were children. So in the earliest years of our lives, the way that the adults around us related to us, we brilliantly adapted. It's, I find it so amazing for anyone listening who thinks they're broken or thinks there's something wrong with them or um, they're inept in any way. I want you all to know there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. In fact, everything is completely right. And before we could all even tie our shoes or write our names, we had the ability and capacity to say to ourselves subconsciously, okay, there isn't a secure attachment here, but I need to keep growing. I need to be able to develop So what do I need to do to create safety for myself? How do I need to adapt based on the deficiencies of the adults around me? And that's just remarkable. I just like to start by saying that because there can be a lot of shame around how we show up relationally and there is nothing wrong with it. It's everything is right with it. It's why we've been able to get to where we are now. So just first really want to make that clear. Um, And, um, these things can begin shifting. Absolutely. It's so possible to, 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 well, one, one of my mentors, Peter Levine says, it's never too late to have the childhood we deserve. And that's really true. We can go back and give these parts of ourselves, these young parts, the secure uh, attachment they've been longing for. And when that happens, among other things, our baseline for how we connect with other adults shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, So there are four predominant ways that we might find ourselves relating to people. And um, none of us are are usually all of one. We're usually, we can be a combination of these four that I'm about to share. So a secure attachment is the experience of, I feel safe to connect with others. I feel safe within. And so I'm safe to have closeness, but I'm also safe to have distance. 
and relationships, when we experience this, we, um, they, they feel an overall ease to them. I feel regulated, I feel safe to be seen. I feel safe to communicate my truth. Ruptures don't feel so scary, meaning there can be an argument. And although not fun, I don't go into a place of the relationship is over, I'm not gonna be okay. I really know that this connection, um, if the other person of course is not, it is a safe person, that this connection is okay. So that's the overall experience of being uh, uh, securely attached. Then we have our um, anxious attachment or often called ambivalent. So an anxious attachment is the experience of um, or, or a result. Actually, I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, combine how this relates in our childhood because it just makes a little more sense to talk about it in relation. So just going back to secure attachment for a minute. So. This is a result of in our earliest childhood relationships, our caregiver was able to create consistent safety, consistent attunement with us and our nervous systems, and um, to express and receive love, among some other things. But those are the primary. So uh, our system knew they're right here. They're available for me. I'm okay. Here's just an example of what this would look like, like acted out in our childhood. Let's say I was at the age where I was learning to walk and my caregiver, by the way, doesn't have to be mom, dad, mom, mom, dad, dad, could be on uncle, grandma, whomever, foster parent, whoever was there. Now, um, and, and when I say there, they may have been neglectful and not there at all, but they were the primary person, even if they weren't actually showing up or available. Mm -hmm. So let's say in a secure attachment, I'm learning to walk and I'm about to walk out of the room and my caregiver is in the room with me. So children will look back to the caregiver to see, is, um, to look for a cue of safety or danger in the adult. So they're looking to say, basically saying, am I safe or not? And so a securely attached parent would say, you're doing really great. Keep going. I'm right here. They wouldn't go frantically chase after them and say, you're not okay. Don't go in the other room. Yeah. They wouldn't not be in that room. They would be there, but they would be giving them the autonomic message from their regulated nervous system. You're okay. You're doing great. I see you. I'm here for you. And I am a safe base. Remember I talked about that therapeutic safe base. Well, when we have a secure attachment, our caregiver was able to be that secure base. Okay. So then we show up in, in the world uh, feeling the same way. Oh, I'm safe to be in the world. I'm safe to take up space. And it, with, with that parent, a rupture, our caregiver, a rupture happens. And the caregiver does not make it our fault or tell us we're bad because a rupture happened. They would say something like, uh, let's say a rupture happened over, um, you know, I broke something or hit the dog or whatever. They would say, oh, what are you noticing right now? Are you feeling upset? Are you feeling frustrated? Where, where do you notice that? What, let's, if we could do something different to help process that for you, because that makes sense that it would be really frustrating that your baby sibling is getting all the attention right now. So you, and I'm so sorry, then they would take ownership that I wasn't seeing you more and meeting your needs. So let's do that. What, and what, how might that energy need to get out of your body? So again, a lot of people listening are probably thinking like, I did not experience that. I was right. reprimanded, told I was bad. And then I shut down and went off by myself. 
Mm-hmm. So those are just some examples of what it looks like and why we would come into a secure attachment. And then how we experience the world would be just like that. Now, if our caregiver was on again, off again in their attuning to us. They were sometimes there, but sometimes not there. And maybe they were dysregulated where they were uh, fearful, anxious all the time, or lots of energy was happening in their system. In that same analogy of walking out of the room, that would be the child turns to look, am I okay? And the caregiver says, you're gonna fall, you're gonna get hurt. Don't, Don't go in the other room without me. You're not gonna be okay. You're not okay. We're not okay. That's the message that's being sent. We're not okay. And you're not okay on your own. So then a child beautifully adapts to that and says, all right, that's the message I'm getting. So what do I need to do? I need to make sure that I am, there's no rupture. I got to make sure there's no ruptures. If there is a rupture, I got to get, get them back. I'm not safe to do things on my life in my life on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, I need to make sure there's other people with me or, or they're reassuring me because I don't feel safe inside. I'm not safe by myself because that's the message I got probably from a caregiver who was feeling that about themselves inside. Mm-hmm. And so then I show up in my adult relationships and when a rupture happens, like an argument and my partner is like, I need, I just need to go for a walk and I need some space. My system is saying, no, we need to fix this right now because if we don't fix this and if we're not, if we're not back in connection, I'm not okay. I'm not okay not to be connected. So, and as I'm a- a- expressing this, you can probably hear it in my voice that I'm activating what's called my sympathetic nervous system. So when we're more anxiously attached, we are going to resource this mobilizing state. This is where anxiety, frustration, worry, mm-hmm. fear, terror all live. Is this also, so in in regards to that, if you're saying, no, we need to fix this right now, right? Would that be the same as say their partner's going on a walk and then they're constantly nervous that the partner's not going to be okay while they're on that walk? Would that still be considered like the nervous? Yes, that would be a very Very anxious. Yeah, that would be a very similar experience. And when a rupture happens, I'm resourcing this mobilizing state. Why? Because my system's saying, I have to do something right now to get this, get this, this back, get the connection back. So I might you know, I feel like I have tunnel vision. I can't, I'm at work today. I can't think about anything else, but besides the fact that we're in an argument, is this going to be over or things over? I don't know. How do, how do I fix this? Do I reach out? They haven't responded. I don't know what to do. Yeah. And then we can go to a place of, you know what? I, this all started because I communicated my need and they got activated about that. So, you know what, who cares about my need? I don't have that need anymore. Uh-huh. I just need to fix this connection. So, Hey, I'm sorry. You know what? It's fine. It's not a big deal. I'm okay. So we will disregard our own truth for the greater purpose that our system is saying we need, which is connection. Mm. We need to feel connected and safe. So for those of you that experience that it is, it is happening, not because there's anything wrong, not because you're needy. A lot of people who are more anxiously attached have been given a message that they're needy. Um, not at all. Your system simply has got a cue as a child that I'm not safe on my own. I need others uh, in order to be safe. So we may find ourselves having a much more challenging time self-regulating versus co-regulating. So co-regulating are things I can do with other people that that support me to to be present or to be in the here and now. Um, Self-regulating are things I do on my own. So someone who is more anxiously attached, like if they had to choose between uh, going to the beach with some friends or going to the beach alone, 
going to the beach alone might not feel good at all. It might just, it might feel, um, we, they might just be worried the whole time. Like I'm not with anyone. What is everyone else doing? How can I just be with other people? Cause being with me doesn't feel good for now. So, so that's the anxious attachment style. And we resource that beautiful sympathetic nervous system or mobilization. Then we have the avoidant attachment style. So this is a result of our caregiver either not being available at all. So they were neglectful. They just weren't there. Mm -hmm. or they were dangerous. They were the source of danger for us. So isn't it smart that as a child, what we do is we learn to become an island all by myself. The thing is with children, we are not born with the capacity to co-regulate. Uh, I'm sorry, to self-regulate rather. So children are not, no, no child is born with the capacity to be able to self-regulate. What does that mean? It means that we, we rely on our caregivers to help our nervous systems regulate so that when we're feeling scared, overwhelmed, tired, um, all the things that we experience as new people in this world, we are looking for the caregiver to help us feel better. Now, what if they're not able to help us feel better? Well, we adapt with that anxious attachment or we shut down and become this island. So this is a result in that same analogy. If I was about to walk out of the room, that caregiver is not even there. I look back, there's nobody there. They're neglectful mm -hmm. or they're dangerous. So my system is saying, my system wouldn't even look back after knowing that they were dangerous. I just got to go it alone. Mm -hmm. So what we will do is resource our, because we don't have the capacity to self-regulate, we'll say, well, I can't regulate out of this dysregulation. So what am I going to do? Numb it because I, I can't make it go away. But what I can do is numb myself. So I'm not actually in my experience very much. Mm -hmm. um, and that is resourcing what's called our dorsal vagal complex. This is our state of shutdown. Here's, there's a lot of flavoring to it, but this is where apathy, um, hopelessness, depression, um, dissociation, uh, feeling separate from the world, really low energy. I'm not really here. This is where uh, all of those, those experiences live in this dorsal state. So for me, I've been given the, the message from my earliest childhood experiences that connection is either dangerous or doesn't happen. Our nervous systems, of course, don't like danger, but they also don't like what they don't know. So for me, if I'm not used to people coming towards me because there was no one there, or when they did come towards me, they were dangerous. Well, when I get into a relationship, a part of me so wants to be in this relationship, but then the more serious it gets, the more I feel overwhelmed and I just shut down and pull away. And then I wonder, well, but I really want to be in this. Why do I keep doing that? I like, I really care about this person, but we've been, the closer we get, the more I want to run away and just like, I, I can't tolerate it. It's too much or to be chosen. And then when a rupture happens, an argument, what my system is doing is saying, whoa, this is a cue of danger. Similarly to sympathetic, both are seen as a cue of danger. And it's just a different way of resourcing around that danger. One is I got to get us back in connection to be safe. The other is you're the danger, meaning because you're reminding me either of how I had to go it alone as a child or that unsafe person. So I pull away. So rupture happens and I'm saying, I got to go for a drive. I got to go for a walk. I can't talk about this. 
And then the anxious, like if two people are in a relationship, an anxiously attached person and an avoidantly attached person, which is the most common combination, we get in a rupture and the avoidant person system says, I got to get out of here because I'm not safe to be in connection with anyone. I go to my island. Well, if I'm anxious, then I, that's going to make me want to get even closer. What can I do to get you to get, wait, 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 don't go for a walk. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. All that will do for me as an avoidant person is I'm going to go further away, pull further away. And then we get in that dance. And I'm sure there's some listeners who've had that experience happening. And I just want to, to normalize that and say how normal it's our protective parts. Don't see our loving partner in that moment. They see their childhood. And then those protective parts just act out what they knew in their childhood. Mm-hmm. And, and so those are, now we've gone through three uh, attachment styles. And the last one is disorganized. So again, there are no good or bad attachment styles. They're all created equal. And this one is um, a combination of uh, anxious and avoidant. So this is the result of my caregiver's being sometimes the source of danger, sometimes the source of safety. How confusing, right? For a child where, wait, the caregiver, sometimes they're so fun and nice to me and then they snap and all of a sudden they're abusive or they're dangerous or they're unavailable. I'm so confused. Mm. So so because of that, I don't know what to expect. I, I wanna get close to someone, but I freeze. Yeah. I want to be close to them, but I can't be close to them uh, because wait, are they going to be, da- what well, they're going to be dangerous. I can't. And so we resource our autonomic state of freeze where I have all this energy inside, but I'm just kind of frozen. This is also the result of caregivers giving um, unwinnable situations like a caregiver saying, um, Hey, uh, pick out your own clothes today. And you pick out your own clothes and they say, why did you pick the clothes out? Why would you do that? Mm. Or go hang out with your friends tonight. And then you do. And then wow, you don't care about me at all. I was all alone on this Friday night and you went out with your friends. How confusing. What a double binding message, a lose-lose message. So for us, we may find ourselves more comfortable in chaos. Not that we like it, but I know how to navigate that because I'm used to that. So throw a million things at me and I can can figure it out because that's what I'm used to navigating. Mm -hmm. Relationally, more chaos will feel more comfortable, not better, but more comfortable. And then when we come at first into towards a secure attachment, that will feel very uncomfortable because it's solid and we're used to chaos. And so when things are solid, we may find ourselves not on purpose, but picking a fight because this is uncomfortable and I have to, I have to create what I know and also get some distance. Mm -hmm. So those Yeah, that, that sounds like, you know, something I just hear a lot with friends too, where it's, you'll hear relationships where there's one person telling the other, you like there to be drama. Like you always want to have conflict in the relationship. And this person is saying, no, that's not me at all. And it's right. Like, it's not something that they actually like. They're just used to it. And they're maybe not even realizing that they're creating that comfort zone. It's exactly right. And what will often happen is the more close we get, the more my system might say, uh-oh, when I got close before, they sometimes hurt me. So then all of a sudden we're having like this great dinner out. And then I don't even mean to, but I bring up something that happened two weeks ago. It like just reflexively came out of me. And I'm like, oh, you know, but yeah, but you didn't do that thing. So, you know, and then all of a sudden 
we've created, what my system was looking for was, this might be dangerous, we're getting too close. How can I get us to be, be, uh, be safe? Mm-hmm. And again, not happening because anything is wrong with us, not happening because that can't shift, but happening because our protective parts simply see, especially our romantic partnerships, the only example they have for uh, a close relationship, those protective parts, is our earliest childhood experiences. Right? That's where they go to first to look at like, well, this is what, especially if we're partnered, well, here's the example I have of what family looks like. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm, my, my protective parts are going to expect family to be like, or a, a serious right. relationship. Right. Okay. And then with attachment theory, are there tests that people can take or is it more, you know, like per 16 personalities or love languages, or is it more about reading through all of them? Maybe listen to the podcast episode and then just trying to figure out which one you are. Yeah. Well, um, there are, there are certainly, I mean, I, I certainly use some, they're not diagnostic tools, but, mm-hmm. but getting a loose understanding of like, where do I fall primarily? And we can get, so there are some like questionnaires that you can fill out to get a sense of, I use them in my work and, and Diane Poole Heller, she uses them. So folks can look her up, um, okay. yeah, not diagnostic tools, but to give folks a sense of like, where, what is my predominant attachment style? She's got great books on attachment um, as well. Uh, and getting to know like, how much am I, do I show up at maybe predominantly anxious, but I'm also a little bit avoidant. Okay. So people can be more than one. Oh, yes. We can be okay. all, four. all four, have a combination. And here's uh-huh. the other thing based on who we're in relation to one of those might take the front front runner. So let's say I'm with someone who's, who's very avoidant. Well, if I'm avoidant too, but they're all, maybe they're even more, they have more of a percentage and I'm making up percentage because there's not really like a percentage, but let's say they're more dominant in their avoidance state than I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm, when I'm with them, because they're more dominantly avoidant, that might activate the little parts of my anxious part attachment. Mm-hmm. And then, but, but let's say I'm with someone because maybe I'm more, ink, more predominantly dorsal, I am uh, avoidant rather uh, in general. If I'm with someone who's anxious, I'm going to definitely be more resourcing my avoidant attachment. But anyway, it can be different based on who we're in relationship. Okay. And then in that same um, correlation that you just used, would there be any specific one that might make someone more secure? So, so based on all, all of those three um, insecure attachment styles, we can absolutely come more towards secure attachment. I love the term for it's earned secure. I earned it. I did the work to come into secure attachment. Um, and here's something I'd invite listeners to think about. So let's say you're listening and you're like, you know what? I think I really resonate with being more anxiously attached. When you were describing those things, I was like, yeah, that, that sounds like me or yeah, that's familiar. Well, what we want to work on is, can I begin tolerating stepping towards a couple things? One, self-regulation. What we want to do is begin showing ourselves that we're safe inside. The whole reason that, we're, that we can't handle a rupture or we need people close because we don't feel safe inside. So how can I start so, showing myself that I am safe with me, 
not just safe with others. So what I'd invite people to think about is what, what things feel good to me? Does meditating feel good? Does taking a bath feel good? How about going for a hike or a run? And can I see about being as present as possible to that? What informs me that it's good? And how can I start building my capacity for self-regulation? Uh, um, I'd also invite folks who are more anxiously attached when something like a rupture does occur, that person, they might, you know, if they're more avoidant, they might not be available. Is there a safe person I can connect with and really attune to them? Because what we can find ourselves doing is talking at someone, like I'm venting, but I'm not really attuning because I didn't get the experience when I was young of people like really attuning with me. So instead having the intention of, okay, instead of venting, I'm gonna really see their face and see if I can just take in, this is a safe person. And can I let that support my nervous system to regulate? Or an animal, can I connect with them and really become present to the attunement? So if we're more anxiously attached, those are some of the things we wanna work on. Now for a more avoidantly attached, self-regulation is gonna be way more comfortable. Like, yeah, I'll go on a hike by myself. I'll do some breath work alone. I will, you know, I will yeah. meditate in my backyard solo. Maybe animals are okay, but no people. So our work is, can I tolerate co-regulation? Can I tolerate connection with another person? And tolerable steps towards that. So what's it like for me to be with another person and not like wear a mask, like smile when I'm not actually happy, but instead share what's really happening. Maybe just a little bit of that, not all of it. Mm -hmm. And see, can I take in even 1% of that experience? And at first it might feel exhausting because our system is saying, don't connect, don't connect. It's not safe. It's not safe. And then after for folks that are more avoidant, it's like you go out to lunch with a friend, you make the plans a week ago. You, that sounds fun. Then it's coming up. It's the day of, and everything in your system says, I need to cancel this. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And a part of you is saying, but I really want community. And another part saying, it's not safe. And let's say I get myself not to cancel. And I go to the thing and parts of it were really fun. But then after I just like, I need to be on the couch by my, like, that was exhausting. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's because our system was saying danger, danger, danger. Hello. It's not safe to connect. Mm -hmm. And we did it anyway. And then it makes a lot of sense to be tired. And that's a huge step forward in safe connection. And it and might not even be the actual event, right? It's like you spend yeah. so much energy just trying to get comfortable that by the time exactly. you do, it's over and you're tired. That's exactly right. Because our yeah. system is saying, hey, I have this information from the past. Even the people who are supposed to love you the most were dangerous or they weren't available. So what do we do? No, we can't go to brunch. No, 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 no. And we're trying to say, wait, wait, I really like this person and I want to hang out with them. So the more we do this, the more we give ourselves disconfirming experiences, which means our systems begin to see, hey, maybe I am safe to come into a secure attachment in a safe connection. And it becomes more effortless. Lastly, I just wanted to go over the disorganized attachment style. So when we're more disorganized, let's remember our system saying, I want you close, but you might be dangerous. So we might find ourselves having people close and then we push them away when they get close, having people close and then we push them away when we get, when they get close. And so our system is saying uh, co-regulation primarily isn't safe. It's not safe to connect with other people. So we want to do very similar things if we were more disorganized. How might I be able to tolerate 
safe connection. And that might start with an animal. Am I safe to let them near me? Am I safe to begin connecting? And then it could be also, we can start with not even humans in real life. We can start with uh, humans in a TV show. I talk about this all the time, but I would use Mr. Rogers as a regulating person for me because he was resonated as safe. So if there's was someone in your childhood, a bus driver or Mr. Rogers or um, Bob Ross was my second one. I, I like to watch that guy paint forever. Um, for those who know who he is. Yeah. So could we, could we even watch a video and see like, can I connect? Can I be safe to connect um, in tolerable ways? The more we do this, the more we show, not tell, because remember going back to talk therapy, this work of, of attachment is somatic. I can't talk, I can tell myself all day, listen, you're safe to have a rupture. They've, you've been with them for 15 years. They're not going anywhere, we're safe. And then I still have that response. That's because I can't talk myself into it. This mm -hmm. is where we have to show our systems that we're safe to experience. And we do it one step at a time. Okay. So, and love the breakdown too of how we can actually, you know, shift or I would say glide maybe yeah. through the attachment theories based on maybe being on our own, being in different relationships. Um, I had no idea that you can really tie that into things like you said, as far as money or possessions. Uh, we can touch on that a little bit. I think that'd be really great too. Yeah. So, so let's say I'm more anxiously attached, right? I got the message that I'm not safe on my own. Uh, and so my system is saying, I need to be able to control external things in order to feel safe. And I'm not going to be safe if I don't have them, including people, mm -hmm. right? So, so look how that translates to money. So I might have, uh, $5,000 and, and no money in my account. And then I have $5,000 in my account. And when I had no money, I thought having $5,000, that'll all feel safe. But then, then I don't feel safe. Wait, no, I need, I need $10,000 in my savings. I need to have $20,000 in my savings. I have $100,000 in my savings. And I still have that same response because my system is saying, I'm not still not, this isn't curing me being unsafe inside. Right. It's the same in partnership where we're like, we might find ourselves trying to like control our partner. Like you can't, I don't want you to talk to that person or, um, don't wait, we, we have to know where you are at all times, but it doesn't actually fix the problem. We're like, oh, but I still feel this way. So the same goes with money where like it, I I'm terrified to lose it or there's not enough. And I have to keep trying to get more. And if, if I don't have that, I won't be okay. Cause it's all coming from that internal experience of I'm not okay inside. Right now, if I'm more disorganized, that's the experience of, I, I'm really used to chaos, right? So I might have the experience that's come here, go away. So, okay, I, I, can, I can earn the money, but then it disappears. Where'd it go? It's gone. Mm. Because, but that creates the chaos, right? So then I have to mobilize to get, the, get more money, but then it's gone. And that's what I'm used to. That's what my system's used to. Mm -hmm. So we may find ourselves experiencing our finances that way. If I'm more avoidant, I might find myself, I don't even look at my bank account. I have anxiety about it, but it's, it's terrifying to look at. So I just put a wall up. I go to my island and I haven't checked it in two months. <laughs> and I really hope it's okay, but I, it's too overwhelming to look at. It's too overwhelming. I can't go there. No, get it away from me. Ah, uh, it's overwhelming. And I just yeah. shut down. You're, you're hoping there's enough in there, but you never really want to find out. <laughs> yeah, but you never really want to find out and you don't want to look at it. And I, I remove myself from it. Mm. So, so that's, and, and it can be the same with our purpose. 
you know, with these three attachment styles and other things too. Um, and remember, we're all a can be a combination of them as well. And then how would you say that attachment theory helps us overall move through life? Like now we know our attachment theory, we know how we're attaching to people. How do we use that to help us as our tool? Well, it is a tool just in and of itself. Like if we didn't resource these things as young children, we wouldn't have been able to keep developing and be where we are today. They created these attachment styles, created the, the safety that we needed to continue on. So that's how they're still showing up for us. They are not a deficiency. They are a beautiful resource that our system is using to, be, to feel safe. That's it. And our work is how do we, if we are in fact in relational safety, so that means that we're safe in the world and safe in our relationship. Although I will say in me just even saying, being saying safe in the world, there are um, so many uh, billions of people who aren't safe in the world because the color of their skin or their sexual orientation. Um, and and so want to acknowledge that. That's so important because our system is going to show up in a beautiful way to keep us safe then and say, hey, I've experienced a lot of things that are entirely unsafe, maybe even on a daily basis. So I'm going to go out into the world and, and be protected. So I just want to really acknowledge that and um, um, before going into to how we can begin changing it. So Go ahead. Sorry. I think you were going to say something. No, you're fine. So I, I mean, that was kind of my next question, but you're already tying into it. It's just, you know, we covered like the romantic part and, and money too, but also how, how we are using our attachment style, whether it's in any type of, you know, relationship, if it has to do with our friends or our children, uh, maybe with parents, it's a little bit more sustained from the beginning or how we are in work. Mm hmm yeah, so so it will show up the uh, similarly in all of those all of those different ways. Mm -hmm. Where in work, for example, well, if I have there's an authority figure usually a boss, mm -hmm. uh, unless I am the boss. But otherwise, there's an authority figure, and my system is going to say this reminds me of my authority figures from when I was a childhood. In childhood, okay, how did I need to respond then? That's how I'm going to respond now. Did I need to be the people pleaser and the good? little child, you know, um, when I was little. And if so, I will might do that. And then I don't have any boundaries. And I just say, yeah, that sounds great. I'll keep doing all these things so that I can remain connected and okay. Hmm. Or I don't let them close at all. And I shut down and I don't really try because uh, if I really did try and was rejected, let's say, because my, maybe my caregivers were neglectful, that'll be so painful. So I'm just going to half show up. So there's uh, our, our attachment styles show up, show up there as well. Um, and we can begin shifting them um, mm -hmm. gently and slowly in the way that the more that we show these parts that the here and now is different than the past was. It can be different here. And so that might be something like, you know, I might not feel safe yet to communicate my truth of what's happening, but I'm going to write it down for myself right now so I can actually be present to it. There's space for my truth right. instead of being, you know, talked out of my truth. Maybe that was the experience I had as a child mm -hmm. and then maybe in my adult relationships too. So, um, 
So, and, and the, the second thing that I want to say is if for those who navigate the world and it's an unsafe place to be in, we wanna look for, for now, for the moments of safety. Where are they? Are there moments of safety with a particular person? Like if I know if I walk down the street, I am not gonna feel safe. When I come home, when with my, my child or my animal, can I feel a little bit safer and can I feel into that? Or when I'm driving or, or, or wherever, where, where is there uh, more relational safety for me? Mm-hmm. And can I step towards regulating when I'm experiencing that? Okay. And then tying back into what you said too, it's just that, that safety of, you know, or not feeling safe based on the color of your skin or sexual orientation or gender we're using our attachment style in that way of saying, maybe I've had all these experiences of not being accepted because I, I'm this thing that now you're maybe projecting that on in a different area where you may have not necessarily felt that yet, but you're already expecting to feel that because of the past. Yes. So we have something called neural expectancy. So our system is saying, what do I know from the past? And then I will respond in the way that I needed to, to be safe then. You know, what did I know in the past? Well, um, let's say I experienced police brutality as a teenager. I did nothing wrong and I was harassed all the time. Well, it would be a really smart thing then if I saw a police officer to start running. That's a smart response. My system is saying that's not safe. And so I just want to say that because however our systems are responding to keep us safe or smart mm-hmm. and they aren't happening accidentally and they're sure not happening because anything's wrong with us. It's happening because our system is saying, here's, here's what happened and what do I need to do to stay safe from that happening again? So for some of us that might be fawning or shutting down or I just uh, please or appease, okay, whatever, whatever, whatever I need to do to disappear and appease so that this can stop or I can be safe. Yeah. So just want to say all of those things because there can be so much shame about how we respond. Um, yeah. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. Okay. And tying in with that, as we're saying, it's there's nothing to be ashamed of, but do you find that there are um, benefits or dangers in having those certain attachment styles? Like have you're saying, you know, I want I want to run in this situation. I want to be on the defense there's a benefit, maybe we're feeling to protect ourselves, but then there's also a danger there. Yeah. So there's always, the benefit is when there was actual uh, lack of safety or danger, it was a benefit, right? Like, so any protective response, if there's a real threat in front of me, that's smart. You know, like if, if something's dangerous in front of me and I respond in a self-protected way, that's a super smart thing to do. But what happens when we've experienced trauma is our system is responding to things that are over because our system doesn't know it's over. Mm-hmm. So let's say like I had a childhood where everyone was so critical of me and then I get, I that's over, but my system doesn't know it. And I'm in a safe relationship and I get defensive, like you mentioned, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I get um, like snappy and defensive and angry. Mm-hmm. Well, what's happening is my system is responding to the past, not to this person in front of me. And this goes back to why it's so important to get support around these things, because none of us on our own can process that experience. What needs to happen is that that rage or energy needs to be discharged, come out of our bodies, but it needs to go towards where it was supposed to go. 
Instead, we have something called displaced anger, right? Where it goes towards this next person who I really care about because it's just coming out. And so through somatic work, we can begin helping to support the healing of that, that energy to come out where it was supposed to go, where we weren't safe to have it go, which was like mm. at the caregivers. We can, we, when we do this work, we're not actually calling up the caregivers and having that experience. We're doing it uh, in an embodied way and allowing that to come out. So then it stops showing up. And then I no longer have that defensive response or get mm-hmm. rageful or angry. So, so that's what, that's such a big component of, of healing and somatic healing for sure. Okay. And then would you say, and maybe this is a conversation for another episode or something, but would you say that there are specific things that we can do for ourselves? One, realizing like this is our attachment theory and to help us, you know, move without being so anxious or being avoid, um, anxious avoidant, or maybe we know our, our, um, partner's attachment style where we know, okay, they have this, this style, I have this style and like how to make sure that we're working cohesively together. So if someone's in partnership, I always invite them to chat about when they're regulated, meaning they're not, no one's activated, they're just regulated, um, to talk about like, what are our, how, what's our attachment styles? Oh, I'm more anxious than their partner. So it's like, oh, I'm more avoidant. So like, look at that pattern, right? So like a rupture occurs, neither of us actually see each other anymore. We see our childhood experience. So then both of us respond the way we needed to as kids and cool. So that means I'm going to pull away. And that means that I'm going to try to fix this right away. Mm -hmm. So if I'm the one that's going to fix it right away, what do I need? How can I plan ahead? What do I need so I can tolerate a little bit of space? Well, we both regulate a little more so that we can come back into connection. So what do I need? What can help me to talk? Do I have a list of a couple people that I check in with? Do I go for a walk or a run? Do I listen to some music? What can I do to help me tolerate some regulating resources um, to, to feel a little safer in this experience instead of having those reflexive behaviors take over? And then if I'm more avoidant, my work is, what do, what things can I do to, to help support my system to feel safer so that I can step back into connection? So uh, it might be saying, okay, I'm going to pull away, but, but in 20 minutes, let's come back together and talk versus like, I'm out of here, right? My step might be, okay, I'm going to go for a walk alone because I need to have some space. And then I'm going to tolerate coming back into connection faster than I normally would. And if I'm anxious, instead of immediately going for connection, let's fix this. Can I tolerate a little bit of space and can I regulate a little bit? So, um, so those along with the co-regulating and self-regulating, I talked about earlier, some things to really work on and creating that kind of game plan with our partner can be really helpful too. Okay. And then, so what I'm taking from what you're saying also is we're able to use this if say there's one person that it says, I don't want to talk about this right now. I'm really heated. I need a couple of hours. I'm going to do whatever, you know, run or something. And the anxious person is here. I want to fix it in this moment. Well, by taking that space, the anxious person can, like you said, maybe catch up with some family, go for a run, do some yoga, whatever you need to do, giving that, 
the avoidant person some time and the avoidant person is now realizing, okay, the anxious person hasn't been calling me, texting me every five minutes saying, let's talk. Or now they're saying, okay, it seems like it's safe where we can go in, in a, a calm environment to have a conversation. Yes. And the avoidance uh, job is to say, here's when I can come back, not just I'm out of here. And then leaving the anxious person to wonder. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then are there any common misconceptions that you can go over as far as attachment styles go? Like I know one of them you said when it comes to people that are anxious have the label of just being needy. Yeah. And uh, people who are avoidant have the label of not caring. They don't care. Mm -hmm. They're, They're not investing. They don't, you know, they're not, they don't, I mean, I keep going back to, they don't care. That's really it. Yeah. There's no passion or yeah, yeah. all the same. Yeah. That can be the, the misconception. That's not what it is at all. So really knowing that if you're on the, in a relationship with someone who's more avoidant and that pulling away, it actually has nothing to do with you. It has to do with their childhood, just as someone who's more anxious and they're on the other side of that has, or, or disorganized has nothing to do with you has to do with their child. It's based in their earliest childhood experiences. So when a rupture occurs, I really want, like, let's say someone's more anxious and their system is saying, they don't care about me. I really want you to see if you can start when you're more regulated to know that has nothing to do, nothing to do with them not caring or loving you. It's their system saying connections, not safe based on my childhood. Mm. Okay. And then going back to polyvagal theory, mm-hmm. I have no knowledge on this whatsoever. So when you mentioned it, I'm like, let me, let's just dive right in. But, and again, maybe this is something we go into a little bit later and more in depth, but what is the correlation and the major differences between polyvagal theory and attachment theory? So there are different, different theories, but they relate together for sure. Because as I described, and as everyone can think about this attachment theory, it's implicit. Implicit means, or you can think about it like it's subconscious and it happens reflexively in my body. I don't ask it to happen. Mm -hmm. So like a rupture occurs, I just get anxious. I am not asking that to happen and it's in my body or I shut down and pull away. That's just happening in my body. So the shutting down and pulling away or the getting anxious um, is a result of, of our autonomic nervous system working. So that's a, that's an experience of our autonomic nervous system, our autonomic nervous system. I often call our own private special ops team. I call it that because there are many parts of it and they are the best of the best that there is. And the whole goal or mission of this autonomic nervous system or protective circuit is to keep us alive and safe. And so it starts with a threat detector that's called neuroception coined by Steve Porges in our brainstem. All it does all day long in our brainstem is look for cues of safety and danger. Is that safe or dangerous, safe or dangerous? And it works in a millisecond, every moment of your whole life. I I just think, again, for anyone who's felt broken, you are not broken. What a perfectly working system that you, I get tired just, you know, having a 10 hour workday. Think about neuroception. It's working every millisecond. And how does it decide what's safe or dangerous? Well, we have intergenerational trauma. So what was dangerous for my ancestors? And then what was dangerous for me or safe? So we have this receptacle of past information that it looks to, right? So let's say sunny days, 
safe. My system decides that's safe based on all these past experiences. Um, trees, dangerous. Let's say a tree fell on top of me when I was a kid and broke my leg. So, and that hasn't been resolved yet, meaning that trauma is still living in my body. Every time my system sees a particular type of tree, what's going to happen? It's going to say danger. So, and by the way, take out the tree and put intimacy, vulnerability, someone being mad at me, um, things being out of control, etc. All cues of danger based on something that may have been dangerous in the past. So neuroception is looking, is that safe or dangerous? When it says it's safe, we come into a state within our autonomic nervous system called ventral. This is where we experience connection, safety, flow, creativity, love, joy, intimacy, all the wonderful things we want. Now, if our system sees a cue of danger, it goes to one of three places. One, first place it will see about going to is something called our sympathetic nervous system. That's that mobilized state. So we go here when our system says there's danger. So in our childhood, our system is saying, this isn't life-threatening, I don't think, this caregiver being on again, off again. I think it's, I think that it's not a, a life-threatening. I think it's just dangerous. So I'm going to try to mobilize to do something. What can I do to, to fix this? So that's what we do uh, then if we're more anxiously attached. We're going to mobilize and use, really resource the sympathetic nervous system where lots of energy in our bodies, our hearts are going to be racing. This is where, again, where anxiety, frustration, worry, agitation, uh, fear, terror all live. Because my system is, and the overarching experience when we're here is I have to do something. I have to do something yeah. now. Now, if our uh, threat detector sees a cue of life-threatening danger, it will resource our dorsal vagal complex. This is our state of immobility shutdown. And this is where we go if our system is saying, I can't fight this thing and I can't flee it. So let's say I'm in a home where there was danger, emotional or physical uh, uh, trauma happening um, or neglect. My system is saying, I can't get out of here. So what am I going to do? Well, I, our autonomic nervous system is saying, I love you so much that I have the capacity to help you leave your body. So you don't actually have to feel the pain of this. So when we're here, we go to this island and it begins with apathy. I don't really care. And then we slip deeper into it to feeling shut down, fuzzy. I can't think. I feel hopeless. I feel separate. I feel unable. I feel depressed. I feel dissociated. All of that is a beautiful self-protective response to our system saying that's so dangerous and I can't fight it or flee it. Or we go to a blended state of freeze, which is I've got lots of energy inside, but I can't move. I need to do something, but I can't do something. So think of deer in headlights. We might go there. And if we're more disorganized in our attachment style, we often go there. So think about this. If ruptures weren't safe as a child because we didn't have a secure attachment, then when a rupture occurs, the threat detector looks to that receptacle of past information and says, wait a minute, rupture, <gasps> rupture is dangerous. If I'm anxious, my system says it's dangerous, but I have to do something. It's not life-threatening. If I'm avoidant, my system says ruptures are life-threatening. I got to get out of here. And I say, I'm out. And those are, that's how our autonomic nervous system is working with our attachment style, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. So in your situation, as you briefly touched on childhood trauma, 
what would you say now having all of this knowledge and the work that you do today? Um, I usually like to ask the guests if they are speaking to their younger self, what mm-hmm. you would say to Sarah in that state of feeling unsafe at home, like what wisdom or advice would you give to her then? Um, well, you know, I think for me, because of the extent of my trauma, I would want to let that little part of me know uh, that she's good. Because for so many of us, we've ex- I sure, certainly experienced uh, feeling so bad. I, I was sexually abused most of my childhood, so felt like I was so bad and something and I was so yucky and awful. And that's what children are often left with when they experience abuse. So, um, which took a long time to become free of. And and it means really reparenting those young parts. So I did spend a lot of time letting her know that she's very good. And if I could go back in time, that's what I would let let her know that she's not bad. Um, and, And that... You know, I don't think time is linear. I think we time travel all the time because when ruptures happen, young parts of us show up all the time. So, so letting those young parts know part of parts work in inner child healing is letting the young parts know I'm right here. Mm-hmm. I'm right here and you're not alone. Um, and, and that's not just work. Like if we could go back, we, the cool thing is we can. And that goes back to Peter Levine's quote of it's never too late to have the childhood we deserve. We, that's the most beautiful thing about healing work yeah when you mentioned that you felt like you were bad or felt like you were bad like you put the guilt on yourself or just bad that the situation was happening or a combination of both Mm -hmm. so very often children internalize what's happening is I'm bad um I I either made this happen or it has somehow permeated me So instead of the experience being just an experience, it's now a yucky part of me that I can't get rid of. It's a really common experience, not just with with people who experience childhood abuse, but in our adult lives too. Mm -hmm. I just feel like I can't get rid of this. It's a part of me now. So so that's what I went when saying um, from, or I guess for many people, that's often the experience. So just want to normalize that, that anyone listening who has experienced that know that they're not alone and um, with trauma healing, that we can actually become free of it. We can, um, uh, what's called, the technical term is we've overcoupled it, meaning I've identified it as me. That horrible thing is me. I'm yucky. I'm bad. I can't get this off of me or away from me. It's a part of me. So we begin to separate that overcoupling and that I can now see it as separate from me. That wasn't me. That's not me. I am not bad. And I never deserved that to happen. And that's the liberating work that healing brings. And one of the reasons why we want to do our healing work so that we can be free. And there isn't a becoming in healing. It's a coming back to who we are, which is whole and enough and perfect justice every each and every person is yeah and I can personally say like I appreciate the work that you're doing because I'm sure just in you know sitting down with your clients that you there might be times where certain things come up with a client that can bring you back to a certain place so the fact that you take 
those things that you went through and now you're using that as a chance to help other people I think is amazing and uh, you mentioned the Peter Levine quote, but are there any other quotes or like mantras that you like to live by that just kind of help you if you're having a day of like going back to that trauma or something's reverting you back that just helps you stay whole? Mm. So not a mantra, but what I like to, to remind everyone is what can help me come back here? Mm. What can be a tether to bring me back to the present moment? Because when I'm activated, I'm no longer in the present moment, um, unless there is a danger right in front of me, unless the bear is actually chasing me right now. But if the bear is not here, what can I do to help bring gently bring me back here? That might be orienting, like looking around your space. If you're noticing that you're feeling scared or overwhelmed, okay, I'm, I'm in this room and there's no one else in this room. Let me really take that in. Let me actually see that. And experience the safety that this room, but just me by myself can provide? Or can I feel the sun on my face, which helps to bring us back into the here and now, or do some tapping or do some somatic regulatory tools. When you work with a somatic practitioner, they'll give you lots of tools. Or again, what things resonate as good for me? Good means if someone tells me, I like that, that's good. Well, that is a cue to me as a somatic experiencing practitioner that that's ventrally evocative for them. Meaning that helps me be present because that state of ventral is my state of regulation. That's where good things exist. So mm -hmm. start writing down like, what are the things that are good to me? And, and when I'm noticing I'm not feeling great, can I do one of those because they bring me back here? Okay. And then I found you on Instagram, but for everyone that's listening, if you're not already following Sarah, um, just where they can find you, all your platforms and also what projects you're currently working on or what's to come. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Sarah B coaching with an H Sarah with an H B coaching or my website, sarahbaldwincoaching.com for uh, offerings. You can go to home.sarahbaldwincoaching.com where you can check that out on my Instagram. I have a, um, a small group program. I run a couple times a year. That one just started, but in about a month and a half, I will have a, a self-guided program that will have live Q and A's with me. It's an eight week program. I've spent like the last year working on it. I'm really excited to get it out into the world. Um, it, it's got so many videos and tools and resources, um, to help folks get unstuck. Um, and then I also do individual work. I have a wait list, um, for folks interested in that, but you can also check that out on my website too. Amazing. And then with everything that we've covered, is there anything else that you might want to touch on that I may have missed over the course of the discussion? I don't think so. I guess I just lastly want to let anyone listening know that they, they always, always make sense. Every single thing about them and that healing is possible for all of us and that bravely and tolerably we can begin step toward, stepping towards it. Oh, I love it. I, and then by the way, too, this entire conversation has been great. You have the most soothing voice. So as I'm listening to you talk, I'm just, it just feels like such a safe space. So it's, it's been amazing. Uh, I'm so glad to hear that, that, that yeah. was for you in that way. And you know, I think I do hear that a lot, but I, and not, but I think it maybe comes from, again, really knowing what it's like to experience these things. And I, and I, want anyone listening to know that in my own way, I know what it's like to be stuck in the depths of that place of shutdown and dorsal or in that terror of, of sympathetic and that 
they aren't alone, they belong um, and, and make sense. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And, yeah. and thank you for sharing that with me and for having me here. Of course. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'd love to have you on again in the future. This has really been great, but thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I'd love that too. And thank you for everyone for listening.